0: Look for the lesson, that's where we'll find the blessing. Look for the lesson, and that's where you'll find the blessing. See, some of y'all done went through something in your past, and you call it an L. Man, I done took an L. Yeah, you took an L. But are are you interpreting that L as a loss, or are you interpreting that L as a lesson? Your attitude determines your altitude. What attitude do I have? Am I looking at this from God's eyes, or am I looking from it from my little selfish, little small small eyes? When something is going on in the world, how do I look at it? Do I look at it as, oh, the world is over with? Or do I look at it and say, what is, what's going on here? What is the purpose of this? Why was this permitted? Because see, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan talked about with the will of God, when he will, when he wants to will a thing into existence, he considers the thoughts and plans of the enemy and uses their plan and uses their will to bring his will more into fruition. So he even considers their thoughts. He considers what they're going to do. So it may appear that they had, it appeared they won here or they did something here, but that was all a part of the plan the whole time to bring about a greater good. So if we can expand our mindset and see the good out of things, the law of polarity, if we can look and see the good out of what's going on, now we can look at ourselves and say, oh, if we just do this right here, we can use this as our advantage. Look for the lesson. That's where we'll find the blessing. Well, let me first introduce like this. Uh, my name is Brother Ben X, just in case somebody came on from somebody else, sending them the link. And what I want to start doing is doing a, um, a book read, uh, allowing us all to collectively go over some of these books and pull out truth and principles out of them uh, that we can use on a weekly basis, honestly, a daily basis, um, if we're aware enough. And this is some of the things that we're going to start to implement inside of the ABS tribe. Actually, uh, the replays, all of these replays will be inside of our ABS tribe. If you don't know what the ABS tribe is, me and Brother Jake has what you call the ABS tribe, which is assets before splurging. And uh, they decided to call it the tribe because we're honestly like a family. And uh, we help each other. We inspire each other. And you can do that by going to the link in my bio on Instagram at Brother Benex, clicking that first link. And go down to the ABS Tribe and we do weekly Zoom calls, business, we talk about life, we talk about spirituality. So we're really about just growing our community and uh, it's just $50 a month. But I decide I'm going to do these book reads for free though. But the upload and the replays will be inside of the ABS Tribe. I see one of the Tribe members just tuned in. I see you, I see you, I see you just tuned in. So listen man, I hope y'all got this book. I sent it to everybody uh, through the Dropbox. I sent it to everybody through the Dropbox. I know some people said they had like some little uh, mishaps. I don't know what happened with that. Everybody else said they got it. And if anybody is interested in helping me read this, please press three because we can alternate pages, we can alternate paragraphs because uh, we're going to read the full first part, which is about 30 pages. And I think it's going to give us a good idea about how habits are formed. And then I'll stop and ask questions and and see if anybody got some input, some insights, some personal stories that they would like to add in as we go. So let's um, let's get started. So the first part is the habit loop, how habits work in the fall of 1993, a man who would append much of what we know about habits walked into a laboratory in San Diego for a scheduled appointment. He was elderly, a shade over six feet tall, and neatly dressed in a blue button-down shirt. His thick white hair would have inspired envy at any 15th high school reunion. Orthritis caused him to limp slightly as he paced the laboratory hallways, and and he held his wife's hand, walking slowly, as if unsure about what each new step would bring. About a year earlier, Eugene Pauly, or EP, as he would come to be known in medical literature, had been at home in Playa del Rey preparing for dinner when his wife mentioned that their son, Michael, was coming over. Who's Michael? Eugene asked. Your child, said his wife, Beverly. You know the one we raised? Eugene looked at her blankly. Who is that? He asked. The next day Eugene started vomiting and writhing with stomach cramps. Within 24 hours his dehydration was, a prompt, was pronounced that a panicked was so pronounced that a panicked Beverly took him to the emergency room. His temperature started rising hitting 105 degrees as he sweated a yellow halo of perspiration onto the hospital sheets. He became delirious, then violent, yelling and pushing when nurses tried to insert an IV into his arm. Only after sedation was a physician able to slide a long needle between the two vertebrae in the uh, small of his back and extract a few drops of cerebral, cerebral spinal fluid. The doctor performing the, uh, the procedure sent, uh, sensed trouble immediately. The fluid surrounding the brain and spinal nerves is a barrier against infection and injury. In healthy, in, in healthy individuals, it is clear and quick flowing, moving with an almost silky rush through a needle. The sample from Eugene's spine was cloudy and dripped out sluggish, as if filled with microscopic grit. When the results came back from the laboratory, Eugene's physicians learned why he was ill. He was suffering from viral I don't know what this word is, encephalicitis, I don't know what that word is, a disease caused by a relatively harmless virus that produces cold sores, fever, blisters, and mild infections on the skin. In rare cases, however, the virus can make its way into the brain, inflicting catastrophic damage as it chews through the delicate folds of tissue where our thoughts, dreams, and according to some, souls reside. Eugene's doctors told Beverly there was nothing they could do to counter the damage already done, but a large dose of antiviral drugs might prevent it from spreading. Eugene slipped into a coma and for 10 days was close to death. Gradually, as the drugs fought off, uh, I'm sorry, fought the disease, his fever receded and the virus disappeared. When he finally awoke, he was a weak and he was weak and uh, disoriented and couldn't swallow properly. He couldn't form sentences and would sometimes gasp as if he had momentarily forgotten how to breathe, but he was alive. Eventually Eugene was well enough to for a battery of tests. The doctors were amazed to find that his body, including his nervous system, appeared largely unscathed. Or scathed. He could move his limbs and was responsive to noise and light, scans of his head though. Revealed ominous shadows near the center of his brain. The virus had destroyed an oval of tissue close to where his cranium and, uh, and spinal column met. He might not be the person you remember, one doctor warned Beverly. You need to be ready if your husband is gone. Eugene was moved to a different wing of the hospital. Within a week, he was swallowing easy. Another week, and he started talking normally asking for jello and salt, flipping through television channels and complaining about boring soap operas. By the time he was discharged to a rehab, uh, uh, rehabilitation center, five weeks later, Eugene was walking down hallways and offering nervousness unsolicited advice about their weekend plans. I don't think I've ever seen anyone come back like this, a doctor told Beverly. I don't want to raise your hopes, but this is amazing. Beverly, however, remained concerned. In the rehab hospital, it became clear that the disease had changed her husband's, uh, changed her husband in unsettling ways. Eugene couldn't remember which day of the week it was. For instance, on the names of the or the names of his doctors and nurses, no matter how many times they introduced themselves. Why do they keep asking me all these questions? He asked Beverly one day after a physician left his room. When he finally returned home, things got even stranger. Eugene didn't seem to remember their friends. He had following. I'm sorry. He had trouble following conversations. Some mornings he would get out of bed, walk into the kitchen, cook himself bacon and eggs, then climb back under the covers and turn on the radio. Forty minutes later, he would do the same thing. Get up, cook bacon and eggs, climb back into bed and fiddle with the radio. Then he would do it again. Alarmed, Beverly reached out to specialists, including a researcher at the University of California, San Diego, who specialized in memory loss, which is how on a sunny fall day, Beverly and Eugene found themselves in a nondescript building on the university's campus, holding hands as they walked slowly down the hallway. They were shown into a small exam room. Eugene began chatting with the young woman who was using a computer. Anybody want to take over from here, Shuggy? All
1: right, one second. (sighs) Having been in electronics over the years, I'm amazed at all this, he said, gesturing at the machine that she was typing on. Gesturing at the machine she was typing on. When I was younger, that thing would have been in a couple of six-foot racks and taken up this whole room The woman continued pecking at the keyboard. Eugene chuckled. That is incredible, he said. All those printed circuits and diodes and triodes. When I was in electronics, there would have been a couple of six-foot racks holding that thing. A scientist entered the room and introduced himself. He asked Eugene how old he was. Oh, let's see, 59 or 60, Eugene replied. He was 71 years old. The scientist started typing on the computer. Eugene smiled and pointed at it. That is really something, he said. You know, when I was in electronics, there would have been a couple of six-foot racks holding that thing. The scientist was 52-year-old Larry Squire, a professor who has spent the past three decades studying the neuro- neuroatomy of memory. His specialty was exploring how the brain stores events His work with Eugene, however, would soon open a new world to him and hundreds of other researchers who have reshaped our understanding of how habits function. Squire's study would show that even someone who can't remember his own age or almost anything else can develop habits that seem inconceivably complex until you realize that everyone relies on similar neurological, neurological processes every day. His and others' research will help reveal the subconscious mechanisms that impact countless choices that seem as if they are the products of well-reasoned thought, but actually are influenced by urges most of us barely recognize or understand. By the time Squire met Eugene, he had already been studying images of his brain for weeks. The scans indicated that almost all the damage within Eugene's skull was limited to a five centimeter area near the center of his head. The virus had almost entirely destroyed his mental temporal lobe, a a sliver of cells which scientists suspect was responsible for all sorts of cognitive tasks such as recall of the past and regulation of some emotions. The completeness of destruction didn't surprise Squire. Viral encephalitis consumes tissue with a ruthless, with a ruthless almost surgical precision what shocked him was how familiar the images seemed 30 years earlier as a phd student at mit squire had worked alongside a group studying a man known as hm one of the most famous patients in medical history when hm his real name was henry Melissa, Mol- 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 the scientist shrouded his identity throughout his life. Was seven years old. He was hit by a bicycle and landed hard on his head. Soon afterward, he developed seizures and started blacking out. At 16, he had his first grand mal seizure, the kind that affects the entire brain. Soon, he was losing consci- consciousness up to 10 times a day. By the time he turned 27, H.M. was desperate. Anti-convulsive drugs hadn't helped him. Hadn't helped. He was smart but couldn't hold a job. He still lived with his parents. HM wanted a normal existence, so he sought help from a physician whose tolerance for experimentation outweighed his fear of malpractice. Studies had suggested that an area of the brain called the hippocampus might play a role in seizures. When the doctor proposed cutting into him, uh, cutting into HM's head, lifting up the front portion of his brain and with a small straw sucking out the hippocampus and some surrounding tissue from the interior of his skull, H.M. gave his consent.
0: Thank you. I'll take, I'll take it from here. Okay. All right. <clears throat> the surgery occurred in 1953. As H.M. healed, his seizure slowed. Almost immediately... Almost immediately, however, it became clear that his brain had been radically altered. H.M. knew his name and that his mother was from Ireland. He could remember the 1929 stock market crash and news reports about the invasion of uh, Normandy. But almost everything that came afterwards, all the memories, experiences and struggles from most of the decade before his surgery had been erased. When a doctor became, uh, began testing H.M.'s memory by showing him playing cards and a list and list of numbers, he discovered that H.M. couldn't retain any new information for more than 20 seconds or so. From, that, from the day of his surgery until his death in 2008, every person H.M. met, every song he heard, every room he entered was a completely fresh experience. His brain was frozen in time. Each day, he was uh, befuddled by the fact that, uh, by the fact that someone could change the television channel by pointing a black rectangle of plastic at the screen. He introduced himself to his doctors and nurses over and over, dozens of times each day. I love learning about HM because memories seem like such a tangible, exciting way to study the brain. Squire told me I grew up in Ohio, and I can remember in. Uh, First grade, my teacher handling every handing everyone's crayons, uh, handing everyone crayons. And I started mixing all the colors together to see if it would make black. Why have I kept that memory? But I can't remember what my teacher looked like. Why does my brain decide that one memory is more important than the other? When Squire received the images of Eugene's brain, he marveled at how similar it seemed to H.M.'s There were empty walnut-sized chunks in the middle of both their heads. Eugene's memory, just like H.M.'s, had been removed. As Squire began examining Eugene, though he saw that this patient was different from H.M. in some profound ways, whereas almost everyone knew within minutes of meeting H.M. that something was amiss, Eugene could carry on conversations and perform tasks that wouldn't alert a casual observer that anything was wrong. The effects of HM surgery had been so debilitating that he was institutionalized for the institutionalized for the rest of his life. Uh, Eugene, on the other hand, lived at home with his wife. HM couldn't really carry on conversations. Eugene, in contrast, had an amazing knack for guiding almost any discussion to a topic he was comfortable talking about at length, such as satellites, he had worked as a technician for an aerospace company, or the weather. Squire started his exam of Eugene by uh, asking him about his youth. Eugene talked about the town where he had grown up in Central California, his time, in the merchant marines uh, trip he had taken to Australia as a young man. He could remember most of these events in his life uh, that occurred prior to about 1960. When Squire asked about later decades, Eugene politely changed the topic and said he had trouble re- uh, recollecting some recent events. Squire conducted a few intelligent intelligence tests and found that Eugene's intellect was still sharp for a man who couldn't remember the last three decades. What's more, Eugene still had all the habits he had formed in his youth. So whenever Squire gave him a cup of water or complimented him on a particularly detailed answer, Eugene would thank him and offer a compliment in return. Whenever someone entered the room, Eugene would introduce himself and ask about their day. But when Squire asked Eugene to memorize a string of numbers or describe the hallway outside the laboratory's door, The doctor found his patient couldn't retain any new information for more than a minute or so. When someone showed Eugene photos of his grandchildren, he had no idea who they were. When Squire asked if he remembered getting sick, Eugene said he had no recollection recollection of his uh, illness or the hospital stay. In fact, Eugene almost never recalled that he was suffering from amnesia. His mental image of himself didn't include memory loss, and since he couldn't remember the injury, he couldn't conceive of anything being wrong. In the moments after meeting Eugene, Squire conducted experiments that tested the limits of his memory. By then, Eugene and Beverly had moved to Playa del Rey to San Diego to be closer to their daughter, and Squire often visited their home for, for his exams. One day, Squire asked Eugene to sketch a layout of his house— Eugene couldn't draw a rudimentary rudimentary map showing where the kitchen or bedroom was uh, was located. When you get out of the bed in the morning, how do you leave your room, Squire asked. You know, Eugene said, I'm not really sure. Squire took notes on his laptop, and as the scientist typed, Eugene became distracted. He glanced across the room and then stood up, walked into the hallway, and opened the door to the bathroom. A few minutes later, the toilet flushed, the faucet ran, and Eugene, wiping his hands on his pants, walked back into the living room and sat down again in his chair next to Squire. He waited patiently for the next question. At the time, no one wondered how a man who couldn't draw a map of his home was able to find the bathroom without hesitation. But that question and others like it would eventually lead to a trail of discoveries that had transformed our understanding of habit's power. It would help spark a scientific revolution that today involves hundreds of researchers who are learning for the first time to understand all of the habits that influence our lives. As Eugene sat at the table, he looked at uh, Squire's laptop. That's amazing, he said, gesturing at the computer. You know, when I was in electronics, there would have been a couple of six-foot racks holding that thing. All right, Alicia, you can go next. You can read next starting at in the first few weeks. Okay. Let me get back
2: to it. Um, In the first few weeks after they moved into their new house, Beverly tried to take Eugene outside each day. The doctors had told her that it was important for him to get exercise. And if Eugene was inside too long, he drove Beverly crazy asking her the same questions over and over in an endless loop. So each morning and afternoon, she took him on a walk around the block, always together and always along the same route. The doctors had warned Beverly that she would need to monitor Eugene constantly. If he ever got lost, they said, he would never be able to find his way home. But one morning, while she was getting dressed, Eugene slipped out the front door. He had a tendency to wander from room to room, so it took her a while to notice he was gone. When she did, she became frantic. She ran outside and scanned the street. She couldn't see him. She went to the neighbor's house and pounded on the windows. Their homes looked similar. Maybe Eugene had become confused and had gone inside. She ran to the door and rang the bell until someone answered. Eugene wasn't there. She sprinted back to the street, running up the block, screaming Eugene's name. She was crying. What if he had wandered into traffic? How would he tell anyone where he lived? She had been outside for 15 minutes already, looking everywhere. She ran home to call the police. When she burst through the door, she found Eugene in the living room, sitting in front of the television, watching the History Channel. Her tears confused him. He didn't remember leaving, he said, didn't know where he'd been, and couldn't understand why she was so upset. Then Beverly saw a pile of pine cones on the table, like the one she'd seen in a neighbor's yard down the street. She came closer and looked at Eugene's hands. His fingers were sticky with sap. That's when she realized that Eugene had gone for a walk by himself. He had wandered down the street and collected some souvenirs, and he had found his way home. Soon, Eugene was going for walks every morning. Beverly tried to stop him, but it was pointless. Even if I told him to stay inside, he wouldn't remember a few minutes later, she told me. I followed him a few times to make sure he wouldn't get lost, but he always came back. Sometimes he he would return with pine cones or rocks. Once he came back with a wallet, another time with a puppy, he never remembered where they came from. When Squire and his assistants heard about these walks, They started to suspect that something was happening inside Eugene's head that didn't have anything to do with his conscious memory. They designed an experiment. One of Squire's assistants visited the house one day and asked Eugene to draw a map of the block where he lived. He couldn't do it. How about where his house was located on the street, she asked. He doodled a bit, then forgot the assignment. She asked him to point out which doorway led to the kitchen. Eugene looked around the room. He didn't know, he said. She asked Eugene what he would do if he were hungry. He stood up, walked into the kitchen, opened a cabinet, and took took down a jar of nuts. Later that week, a visitor joined Eugene on his daily stroll. They walked for about 15 minutes through the perpetual spring of Southern California, the scent of... Mugavila. Heavy in the air, Eugene didn't say much, but he always led the way and seemed to know where he was going. He never asked for directions. As they rounded the corner near his house, the visitor asked Eugene where he lived. I don't know exactly, he said. Then he walked up his sidewalk, opened his front door, went into the living room, and turned on the television. It was clear to Squire that Eugene was absorbing new information, but where inside his brain was that information residing? How could someone find a jar of nuts when he couldn't say where the kitchen was located? Or find his way home when he had no idea which house was his? How, Squire wondered, were new patterns forming inside Eugene's damaged brain?
0: Thank you. Okay. Okay. Within the building that houses the brain and cognitive sciences department of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology are, are laboratories that contain what to the casual observer look like dollhouse versions of surgical theaters. Uh, <clears throat> there are tiny scalpels, small drills and miniature saws less than a quarter inch wide attached to robotic arms. Even the operating tables are tiny. And if prepared for child-sized surgeons, the rooms are always kept at a chilly 60 degrees because a slight nip in the air steadies researchers' fingers uh, Fingers during delegate procedures. Inside these laboratories, neurologists cut into the scores of anest- anesthetized rats, implanting tiny sensors that can record the smallest changes in their brains. When the rats wake, they hardly seem to notice that there are now dozens of microscopic wires arrayed like neurological spider webs inside their heads. These laboratories have become the epicenter for quiet revolution in the science of habit formation. And the experiments unfolding here explain how Eugene, as well as you, me and everyone else, develop the behaviors necessary to make it through each day. The rats in these labs have illuminated the complexity that occurs inside of our heads whenever we do something as mundane as brush our teeth or back out of our driveway. And for Squire, these laboratories help explain how Eugene managed to learn new habits. When the MIT researchers started working on habits in the 1990s at about the same time that Eugene came down from his fever, they were curious about a nub or neurological tissue known as the basal ganglia. If you picture the human brain as an as an onion composed of layer upon layers of cells, then the outside layers, those closest to the scalp are generally the most recent additions from an evolutionary perspective. When you dream up a new invention or laugh at a friend's joke, it's the outside parts of your brain at work. There's that's where the most complex thinking occurs. Deeper inside the brain and closer to the brain stem, where the brain meets the spinal column, are older, more primitive uh, structures. They control our automatic behaviors, such as breathing and swallowing or startle response when uh, when we feel, I'm sorry, response we feel when someone leaps out from behind a bush. Toward the center of the skull is a golf ball-sized lump of tissue that is similar to what you might find inside of the head of a fish, reptile, or mammal. This is the best, I'm sorry, this is the basal ganglia, an oval of cells that for years scientists didn't understand very well except for suspicious that it played a role in diseases such as Parkinson's. In the early 1990s, the MIT researchers began began wondering if the basal ganglia might be integral to habits as well. They noticed that animals with injured basal ganglia suddenly developed problems with tasks such as learning how to run through mazes or remembering how to open food containers. They decided to experiment by employing new microtechnologies that allowed them to observe in minute detail with uh, what was occurring within the heads of rats as they performed dozens of routines. In surgery, each rat had what looked like a small joystick and dozens of tiny wires inserted into its skull after the animal was placed into a T-shaped maze with chocolate at the end. The maze was structured so that each rat was positioned behind a part a partition that opened when a loud click sounded. Initially, when a rat heard the click and saw p- the partition disappear, it would usually wander up and down the center aisle, sniffing in corners and scratching at walls. It appeared to smell the chocolate but couldn't figure out how to find it. When it reached to the top of the tea, it often turned to the right away from the chocolate and then wandered left, sometimes pausing for no reason. Eventually, most animals discovered the reward, but there was no discernible pattern in their uh, meanderings. It seemed as if each rat was taking a leisurely uh, unthinking stroll. The probes in the rat's heads, however, told a different story. While each animal wandered through the maze, its brain, and in particular, its basal ganglia, worked furiously. Each time a rat sniffed the air or scratched a wall, its brain exploded with activity as if analyzing each new scent, sight, and sound. The rat was processing information the entire time it uh, mendered. The scientists repeated their experiment again and again, watching how each rat's brain activity changed as it moved through the same route hundreds of times. A series of shifts slowly emerged. The rats stopped sniffing corners and making wrong turns. Instead, they zipped through the maze faster and faster. And within their brains, something unexpected occurred. Each as each rat learned how to navigate the maze, its mental activity decreased as the route became more and more automatic, each rat started thinking less and less. It was as if first few times if it was as if the first few times a rat explored the maze, its brain had to work at full power to make sense of all the new information. But after a few days of running through the same route, the rat didn't need to scratch the walls or smell the air anymore, and so the brain activity associated with the scratching and smell ceased it didn't need to choose which direction to turn or so decision-making centers and so decision-making centers of the brain went quiet all it had to do was recall the quickest path to the chocolate within a week even the brain structures related to memory had quieted the rat had internalized how to sprint through the maze to such a degree that it hardly needed to think at all but that internalization run straight hang a left eat a chocolate rely upon the basal ganglia the brain probes indicated this tiny ancient neurological structure seemed to take over as the uh, as the rat ran faster and faster and his brain worked less and less. The basal ganglia was centered to recalling patterns and acting on them. The basal ganglia, in other words, stored habits even while the rest of the brain went to sleep to see this capacity in action, consider the graph which shows activity within the rat's skull as it encounters the maze encounters the maze for the first time initially the brain is working hard the entire time after a after a week once the route is familiar with the scaring has with the scaring has become a habit the rat's brain settles down as it runs through the maze now before we go over to page 17 do anybody have um, any thoughts any insight Uh, On what we have read so far Anybody have any input And we're on page 17 right now Anybody have anything that they want to share Anything that they notice And uh, have any insight about what they have read thus far Okay well I'll go first One thing that just came to my mind was It talked about in the beginning When the rats was developing And learning these new information this the new information. The brain was working. It was working. But as it became, uh, I guess, familiar with the path, familiar with the way, familiar with the smell and where the chocolate was, the brain activity went down because it became a habit. So for me, what I got out of that particular situation as a lesson for us all, when we are developing a habit, the habit must be a good habit and it must be done right because if you start to do something and your brain activity goes down after you do it over and over again, if you're doing this thing the wrong way and you're not thinking about it, that's going to be how you do it versus you doing it the right way the first time versus you creating a good habit the first time. When that memory goes down, at least you have a habit of doing something um, the right way it's kind of like if you writing uh, you writing wrong or you dribbling wrong if you're a sports athlete whether if you're running wrong breathing wrong if you develop that habit in the wrong manner incorrectly first once you become familiar with it as you do it over time and your brain activity lowers because of the other things your brain has to think about is going to end up causing you problems because you didn't do it right in the first place. Peace, family. Thank you for checking out the Brother Ben X podcast. Many people are wondering, what can I do now since digital real estate closed on October the 1st? I still want to learn how to make money on social media. I still want to learn how to market and I still want to learn how to build my brand. Well, there's one more way that you can do it. It's a couple ways, but I want to tell you all about the ABS tribe. The ABS tribe is weekly coaching every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday for only $50 a month. If you are looking for accountability, if you're looking for a group of people that's willing to inspire you, help you out, support you, encourage you, you want to get inside of our ABS tribe because every Tuesday and Thursday, me and Brother Jake or one of our more top million dollar friends or six-figure friends are on teaching you every single week. If you want to join the ABS tribe, go to www.whatisabstribe.com, www.whatisabstribe.com. Dot com anybody else have anything they want to share um, before we move on to page 17 uh, you can unmute yourself don't type it i want y'all to actually uh you know i want y'all to actually say it if anybody has anything all right sister hello, keep, hello? Go, yeah go ahead I. I uh, go ahead B. yep
3: Oh, hi. Yeah, my name is Tanya Lewis. And I was just going to say what I
1: took from that is that basically you're saying that even while we sleep, we're still learning in our
3: subconscious state. So it'd probably be helpful like if we were to, for example, play podcasts where you're teaching us stuff, even when we sleep, because maybe the things that we didn't absorb while we was conscious, it can be absorbed subconsciously and then it'll feel familiar to us when we go
0: over the game, when we wake up or something. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. <laughs> Anybody else have anything they want to share?
1: Um, I just want, wanted to ask a, a quick question. I had to jump off for a second. Did they ever uh, say what, what the diagnosis was for uh, Eugene?
0: Uh, I think we about to get into it uh, in these next couple pages. I don't think they did, um, but I okay. think, I think we're going to get into it in these next couple pages. All right, cool. I just wanted to make sure I didn't miss it. All right. Anybody else? <clears throat> All right. Uh, I think Kiara said that she wanted to read. You can start with page 17. Or is that who just read last Can you hear me? Time? Yes, can hear I me? can. Yes.
3: All right. Starting with this process, correct? Uh-huh. Okay. This process in which the brain converts a sequence of actions into an automatic routine is known as chunking. And it's at the root of how habits form. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of behavioral chunks that we rely on every day. Some are simple. You automatically put toothpaste on your toothbrush before sticking it into your mouth. Some, such as getting dressed or making the kids lunch, are a little more complex. Others are so complicated that it's remarkable. A small bit of tissue that evolved evolved millions of years ago can turn them into habits at all. Take the act of backing your car out of the driveway, car out of the driveway. When you first learn to drive, the driveway required a major dose of concentration, and for good reason. It involves opening the garage, unlocking the car door, adjusting the seat, inserting the key into the ignition, turning it clockwise, moving the rear view and side mirrors and checking for obstacles, putting your foot on the brake, moving the gear shift into reverse, removing your foot from the brake, mentally estimating the distance between the garage and the street while keeping the wheels aligned and monitoring for oncoming traffic. Calculating how reflected images and the mirrors translate into actual distances between the bumper, the garbage cans, <clears throat> excuse me, and the hedges, all while applying slight pressure to the gas pedal and brake, and most likely telling your passenger to please stop fiddling with the radio. Nowadays, however, you do all that every time you pull out onto the, onto the street with hardly any thought. The routine occurs by habit. Millions of people perform this intricate ballet every morning, unthinkingly, because as soon as we pull out the car keys, our basal ganglia kicks in, identifying the habits we've stored in our brains related to backing an automobile into the street. Once that habit starts unfolding, our gray matter is free to quiet itself or chase other thoughts, which is why we have enough mental capacity to realize that Jimmy forgot his lunchbox inside. Habits, scientists say, emerge because the brain is constantly looking for ways to save effort. Left to its own devices, the brain will try to make almost any routine into a habit because habits allow our minds to ramp down more often. This effort-saving instinct is a huge advantage. An efficient brain requires less room, which makes for a smaller head, which makes childbirth easier and therefore causes fewer infant and mother deaths. An efficient brain also allows us to stop thinking constantly about basic behaviors, such as walking and choosing what to eat, so we can devote mental energy to inventing spheres, irrigation systems, and eventually airplanes and video games. But conserving mental effort is tricky because if our brain brains powered, excuse me, because if our brains powered down at the wrong moment, we might fail to notice something important, such as predator a predator hiding in the bushes or speeding hard as we pull onto the street. So our basal ganglia have devised a clever system to determine when to let habits take over. It's something that happens whenever a chunk of behavior starts or ends. To see how it works, look closely at the graph of the rat's neurological habit again. Notice that brain activity spikes at the beginning of the maze, when the rat hears the, hears the click before the partition starts moving, and again at the end when it finds the chocolate. Those spikes are the brain's way of determining when to cede when to control to a habit, at which habit to use, and what, which habit to use. From behind a partition, for instance, it's difficult for a rat to know if it's inside a familiar maze or an unfamiliar cup cupboard with a cat lurking outside. To deal with this uncertainty, the brain spends a lot of effort at the beginning of a habit looking for something, a cue, that offers a hint as to which pattern to use. From behind a partition, if a rat hears a click, it knows to use the maze habit. If it hears a meow, it chooses a different pattern. And at the end of the activity, when the reward appears, the brain shakes itself awake and make, makes sure everything unfolded as expected. This process within our brains is a three-step loop. First, there is a cue, a trigger that tells your brain to go into automatic mode and which habit to use. Then there is the routine, which can be physical or mental or emotional. Finally, there is a reward, which helps your brain figure out if this particular loop is worth remembering for the future. The habit loop. Over time, this loop, cue, routine, reward, cue, routine, reward, becomes more and more automatic. The cue and reward become intertwined until a powerful sense of anticipation and craving emerges. Eventually, whether in, eventually, whether in Chile, MIT laboratory or your driveway, a habit is born. All
0: right. Thank you. Do anybody have anything that they want to add um, to this point? Routine reward. For me, I think this is important because it talks about it kind of gives a glimpse to why people kind of fall back into old addictions like alcohol or drinking or sex or whatever the case may be, because they are uh, introduced to that cue, which is why I've heard before. Even the minister talked about when you are uh, someone who suffers from that type of addiction to get around people who are strong get around people who are not addicted to these things because now you won't even have it there to uh, tempt you because that is a cue for you that'll take you into that routine that'll give you the reward. What is the reward? The reward may be, you know, running away from your life problems. The reward may be a feeling that you get reward, may be the pleasant sense of the mind that you feel when you hire, when you're drunk or when you, whatever the case may be. Um, so for me, that just reminds me that if there is a negative Thing Or a negative cue that I am am used to uh, responding to with a bad habit to remove myself as much as I can from that cue so that I don't find myself in a routine because if it is a habit, I probably won't notice that I'm doing it kind of like some of us probably don't remember tying our shoes this morning, but we did it. Uh, Anybody else? All right. Going on to page 20. Habits aren't destiny. As the next two chapters explains, habits can be ignored, changed or replaced. So that's what we're going to talk about in the next two chapters. So I don't know. We're probably going to do that next week and a week after. Uh, but the reason the discovery of the habit loop is so important is that it reveals a basic truth. When a habit emerges, the brain stops fulfilling, participating. Uh, fully participating in decision making, it stops working so hard or diverts focus to another task. So, unless you deliberately fight a habit, unless you find new routines the pattern will unfold automatically. So some of us may even be in a rat race right now. You probably in a relationship and you still in this relationship and you keep going back and you steady going back and your mind consciously. When you think about it, you know, you're supposed to do this or, you know, you're supposed to do that, but then something happens and you triggered again and you're doing it again and you're doing it again. So it says here, if we don't fight deliberately a habit, then we'll continue these routines and the pattern will continue to unfold automatically. So on the outside looking in, it appears like, man, why is you repeating this same mistake? But they don't realize, and you don't even realize you have developed a pattern and a habit without knowing it. However, simply understanding how habits work, learning the structure of a habit loop makes them easier to control. Once you break a habit into its components, you can fiddle with the gears. We've done experiments where we train rats to run down a maze until it was until it was a habit. Then we extinguish the habit by changing the placement of the reward. Anne Grabeau, a scientist at MIT who oversaw many of the basal ganglia experiments, told me then one day we'll put the a reward in the old place and put the rat and by golly, the old habit re- will reemerge right away. Habits never really disappear. They're encoded into the structure of our brain. And that's a huge advantage for us because it would be awful if we had to relearn how to drive every after every vacation. The problem is that your brain can't tell the difference between bad and good habits. And so if you have a bad one and it's lurking there waiting for the right cues and rewards, I'm sorry, it's always lurking there waiting for the right cues and rewards. This explains why it's so hard to create exercise habits, for instance, or change what we eat. Once we develop a routine or uh, of sitting on the couch rather than running or snacking wherever we pass, wherever we pass a donut box, those patterns always remain inside our heads. By the same rule, though, if we learn to create new neurological routines that overpower those behaviors, if we take control of the habit loop. We can force those bad tendencies into the background, just as Lisa Allen did after her karaoke. trip. Uh, what is that cario trip? And once someone creates a new pattern, studies have demonstrated going for a jog or ignoring the donuts becomes an automatic as another habit, as other habit, as any other habit. I'm sorry. Without habit loops, our brain was shut down, overwhelmed by the uh, minuet. Or uh, minate, what is that word? Minuate of daily life. People whose basal ganglia are damaged by injury or disease often become mentally paralyzed. They have trouble performing basic activities such as opening a door or deciding what to eat. They lose. Now I'm gonna. I am going i do not know. Women must got that because women don't never know what to eat. But anyway, they lose the ability to ignore insignificant details. One study, for example found that patients with basal ganglia injuries couldn't recognize facial expressions, including a fear including fear and disgust, because they were perpetually uncertain about which part of the face to focus on. Without our basal ganglia, we lose access to the hundreds of habits we rely on every day. Did you pause this morning to decide whether to tie your left or right shoe first? Did you have trouble figuring out if you should brush your teeth before Or after you showered? Of course not. Those decisions are habitual efforts, effortless. Uh, As long as your basal ganglia is intact and the cues remain constant, the behavior will occur unthinkingly. Though when you go on vacation, you may get dressed in different ways or brush your teeth at a different point in your morning routine without noticing it. At the same time, however, the brain's dependence on automatic routines can be dangerous. Habits are often as much as a curse as a benefit take eugene for instance habits gave him his life back after he lost his memory then they took everything away again as larry squire the memory specialist spent more and more time with eugene he became convinced his patient was somehow learning new behaviors imagine of images of eugene's brain showed that his basal ganglia had escaped injury from the viral uh, encephalitis was it possible? Okay, so that's what it was. It was viral encephalitis. Sure, y'all know how to say that. Enfasi- M- encephalitis. Was it possible? The scientists- encephalitis. Encephalitis. Ence- encephalitis. Encephalitis. There we go. Encephalitis. That sounds more like it. encephalitis. Was it possible, the scientists wondered, that Eugene, even with severe brain damage, could still use the Q uh, routine reward loop? Could this ancient neurological process explain how Eugene was able to walk around the block and find the draw of nuts in the kitchen? All right. All right. Uh, To test if Eugene was forming new habits, Squire devised an experiment. He took 16 different objects, bits of plastic and bright and colored pieces of toys and glued them to cardboard rectangles. He then divided them into eight pairs choice A and choice B. In each pairing, one piece of cardboard choosing at random had a sticker placed on the bottom that read correct. All right. Anybody want to take over from here? Any one of y'all who pressed three? Anybody want to start at Eugene was seated at the table?
2: Eugene was seated at the table, given a pair of objects and asked to choose one. Next, he was told to turn over his choice to see if there was a correct sticker underneath. This is a common way to measure memory. Since there are only 16 objects and they are always presented in the same eight pairings, most people can memorize which item is correct after a few rounds. Monkeys can memorize all the correct items after eight to ten days. Eugene couldn't remember any of the correct items no matter how many times he did the test. He repeated the experiment twice a week for months, looking at 40 pairings each day. Do you know why you are here today? A researcher asked at the beginning of one session a few weeks into the experiment. I don't think so, Eugene said. I'm going to show you some objects. Do you know why? Am I supposed to describe them to you or tell you what they are, they are used for, Eugene couldn't recollect the previous sessions at all. But as the weeks passed, Eugene's performance improved. After 28 days of training, Eugene was choosing the correct object 85% of the time. At 36 days, he was right 95% of the time. After one test, Eugene looked at the researcher, bewildered by his success. How am I doing, as he asked her. Tell me what is going on in your head, the researcher said. Do you say to yourself, I remember seeing that one? No, Eugene said. It's here somehow or another. He pointed to his head, and the hand goes for it. To Squire, however, it made perfect sense. Eugene was exposed to a cue. A pair of objects always presented in the same combination. There was a routine. He would choose one object and look to see if there was a sticker underneath, even if he had no idea why he felt compelled to turn the cardboard over. Then there was a reward. The satisfaction he received after finding a sticker, proclaiming correct. Eventually, a habit loop emerged. Eugene's habit loop. To make sure this pattern was, in fact, a habit, Squire conducted one more experiment. He took all 16 items and put them in front of Eugene at the same time. He asked him to put all the correct objects into one pile. Eugene had no idea where to begin. Gosh sakes, how to remember this, he asked. He reached for one object and started to turn it over. The experimenter stopped him. No, she explained. The task was to put the items in piles. Why was he trying to turn them over? That's just a habit, I think, he said. He couldn't do it. The objects, when presented outside of the context of the habit loop, made no sense to him. Here was the proof Squire was looking for. The experiments demonstrated that Eugene had the ability to form new habits, even when they involved tasks or objects he couldn't remember for more than a few seconds. This this explained how Eugene managed to go for a walk every morning. The cues, certain trees on the corners, or the placement of particular mailboxes were consistent every time he went outside. So though he couldn't recognize his house, his his habits always guided him back to his front door. It also explained why Eugene would eat breakfast three or four times a day, even if he wasn't hungry. As long as the right cues were present, such as his radio or the morning light through his windows, he automatically followed the script dictated by his basal, basal ganglia. What's more... There were dozens of other habits in Eugene's life that no one noticed until they started looking for them. Eugene's daughter, for instance, would often stop by his house to say hello. She would talk to her father in the living room for a bit, then go into the kitchen to visit with her mother and then leave, waving goodbye on her way out the door. Eugene, who had forgotten their earlier conversation by the time she left, would get angry why she, why was she leaving without chatting and then forget why he was upset? But the emotional habit had already started and so his anger would persist, red hot and beyond his understanding until it burned itself out. Sometimes he would bang the table or curse. And if you asked him why, he say, I don't know, but I'm mad, Beverly told me. He would kick his chair or snap at whoever came into the room. Then a few minutes later, he would smile and talk about the weather. It was like once it started, he had to finish the frustration, she said. Squire's new experiment also showed something else, that habits are surprisingly delicate. If Eugene's cues changed the slightest bit, his habits fell apart. The few times he walked around the block, for instance, and, and something was different, The city was doing street repairs or a windstorm had blown branches all over the sidewalk. Eugene would get lost no matter how close he was to home until a kind neighbor showed him the way to his door. If his daughter stopped to chat with him for 10 seconds before she walked out, his anger habit never emerged. Squire's experiments with Eugene revolutionized the scientific community's understanding of how the brain works by proving once and for all, that it's possible to learn and make unconscious choices without remembering anything about the lesson or decision-making. Eugene showed that habits, as much as memory and reason, are at the root of how we behave. We might not remember the experiences that create our habits, but once they are lodged within our brains, they influence how we act often without our realization.
0: Thank you. All right. Do anybody want to add in or have any insight on what we read thus far? Or have anybody been thinking about yourself and thinking, man, I I just realized that I have a cue that triggers a habit or triggers a pattern that I often repeat without knowing. Do anybody have anything that they would like to share?
2: Yeah. Reading this last part about, um, not knowing why we do certain things, but it's kind of, in it isn't that where the whole like diet, uh, Dianetics and, you know, those, uh, what are they called? Ingram's. Yes. Isn't that like what that is? And, you know, while we do certain things, but it's like from like years ago and we may not know, but it's definitely something that's embedded in us.
0: Yeah. It sounds familiar. Okay. Anybody else? I
4: think about, um, how, exactly what she's saying, how, how, how you do... Okay, say, for instance, you your childhood, a lot of people have a lot of childhood issues that they've never gotten resolved, and then leaked over into their adulthood, they still have those habits or issues that's not resolved, and they continue to do those habits, not even knowing that they held those habits. So that's how I look at it. Just for instance, just like... Uh, if a person was in an alcoholic family and, and everything and some of the behaviors that happened in the alcoholic family, and they probably was the older person protecting everybody, they still have that thing going on every time somebody they associate uh alcohol with uh something that went on towards abuse or something in the family, they carried it all unconsciously, not knowing that they had taken that habit from the childhood. Do that make sense?
0: Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? It also, for me, before anybody else go, it makes me think about uh, how conscious we have to be, you know, oftentimes because we are so busy with life, we're so busy with working and we got to come home and do this and we got to come home and do that. A lot of our life is on autopilot and sometimes we need to take an hour or two and just examine our life and just ask ourselves, is the life that I'm living my life? And I think that's a powerful question. A brother the other day on one of our ABS tribe calls says he wants to be the owner of his own mind. And I think that's powerful because oftentimes if somebody else is in control of our minds, unknowingly, they are in control of our life. You know, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan said one time that our every action is led by a conscious thought. And so if you ask me, uh, when we talk about the oppressor and we talk about these different things, They don't oftentimes have to necessarily physically do things to control us if they can get to our minds. And if they're smart enough and wise enough to study us, but we're not wise and smart, smart enough to study ourselves. They already know how we're going to react because they're doing this type of study. I know how they're going to react when they do this right here. I know this is a habit. They're not even going to realize what they're doing. So we have to become conscious of how we move and how we want to move. So when you're in a certain mood, you can consciously say, man, I'm about to go seek refuge in what I know to be truth. I'm about to go call somebody who I know can help me out. I'm about to go meditate. You have to change what your pattern is because if not, well, I'm going to just drink because I remember that's what mama did. I remember that's what daddy did. They just drunk their problems away. I'm finna go just smoke this cigarette because in my mind, I'm telling myself it removes stress, although it's going to cause me more stress when it does harm to my body. So I feel like we just have to be more conscious about ourselves and about our life, because if not, we're going to find ourselves almost literally like robots. I told you all the other day, uh, I asked one of my brothers, uh, not the other day, like maybe a couple months ago, I asked him, what do you want to be? What's your dream career? The brother said, man, I never thought about that. And some of us that's in here today, some of y'all probably been working for a long time since maybe you was young and you never even thought about when you wake up in the morning, how do you desire to live? Man, I desire to have this going on, this happening. But in our mind, we just I just I just got to give me a job and go to work and just just, that's just the way it is. But we never stopped and say, man, hold on. Let me stop and say, man, what life do I want to live? And if we can figure out what life we want to live, what's that reward? Then we can change the cue. And then we can change the pattern uh, willingly ourselves so that we can get the reward that we're seeking for. So uh, that's kind of what I got out of it, man. We have to uh, be very conscious about our lives because the brain, because it has so much going on, is going to make so many things a habit through chunking. So if we don't put the proper things in there for it to chunk, then we're going to be in trouble. Uh, Anybody else? Somebody says, all the recordings in the Facebook page? If tribe, if so I've tried to become a member. It's pending. No, it's going to be inside of the actual ABS Tribe membership. So the ABS Tribe, went, just to give you guys a brief example, whenever you buy a digital real estate or ABS Tribe or 100K Blueprint, whatever the case may be, you get inside of the Facebook group. So you still got access to all the members. Y'all still can talk to each other. But all of the actual content is going to be uploaded to the actual ABS membership, which is uh, $50 a month. So you can click the link in my bio on Instagram and click that top button, and then go to ABS Tribe if you want to get inside of it. All right. So if nobody else has anything to add, I'm going to continue. We got about five pages left, and as we're reading this, I want you all to to be thinking about self. So as we're reading, you know, the, the memory and the habits, I want you guys to be thinking about yourself and your habits so that we all can have something to share. And please don't be afraid to share because we are all gods. Not saying that you're the supreme being. However, we all have force and power within us. So don't ever think that, oh, well, mine ain't going to be good enough or, you know, my little perspective going to sound dumb. No, it's somebody that needs to hear your perspective. And if you give your specific uh, specific perspective you don't know who that will reach and you don't know who that will impact so let me continue uh,
5: yeah, but I wanted to add something okay go ahead as you were you were speaking about um being being mindful of ourselves and being aware of ourselves um in my journey I think it's just very important to stay talking to yourself throughout the day or when you're dealing with your habits that that you are struggling with because a lot of times I find that people fall into the comfortability of the weakness of the habit and they just want to give up. Uh, you know, I've been trying to work out for a while, but, you know, I haven't really got around to it. I'm, you know, i been trying to quit smoking, but I haven't got around to it. And so they just kind of give up. But I think it's important. Like even when you are smoking sometimes or you are not working out, Stay talking to yourself. Stay telling yourself, you know what, I'm, I'm going to quit this. I'm, I'm going to do this. It's going to happen. Even though I might not have the strength to conquer it at this moment, I'm still going to do it because not everybody has that drive to just get up and say, today's the day I'm going to do it. Some people just need a little bit more help than that. So I think it's important not to give up on yourself and to stay confident and to know that you will conquer whatever habit that you're trying to decrease or whatever habit you're trying to increase. It's important to talk to yourself even having conversations in the mirror in the morning and telling yourself those positive words of affirmation that you need to hear because we don't always have somebody there that we can go to to help us out it's good if you have that but sometimes if you don't be that friend for yourself be that guide for yourself that person that supports you and believes that you can achieve that if you're having a struggle with working out wake up and put some workout clothes on you know you might not have made it out the door but at least try to uh, create new habits that will kind of in a way crawl you closer to the goal that you're trying to obtain. If that makes any sense to my brothers and my sisters out there.
0: Absolutely, man. Great point. I wanted to, uh, uh, veggie back. Cause you know, we don't piggyback, <laughs> but I want to veggie back off of that man. And, and talk about a little about the spiritual GPS, not the spiritual GPS. I'm sorry. The spiritual savings account. See, whenever we are in, um, a time of distress, whenever we are in a time where we're, You know, something happened. You got that savings account that's there to help you whenever things go wrong. So when the sister earlier talked about programming the subconscious mind by going to sleep with motivational things, inspirational things. So this particular book right here in this section is talking about physical habits. But don't forget, we got mental habits as well. And what I mean by mental habits is our thoughts. When you introduce to something new, do you automatically have a habit of saying, I can't do it? Press one if, if, if that's you. Just keep it real. See, some people are older, they're they 50 plus years old. And because you're 50 plus years old, anytime somebody says something about technology, it kind of scare I, I I'm not really good with technology. All you got to do is learn it. But because this habit in your mind, I can't do it, these doubtful thoughts, whenever you got a new business idea, ah, but I can't do it, whose thoughts are those? We have to ask ourselves, is it really our thought or have we been trained and we have been up around people who have those bad habits of thinking negative about those about themselves? And we took on their habits. And every time we want to go to the next level, anytime we're introduced to something new, anytime we want to innovate, we have the habit of telling ourselves that we can't do it. So I want us the same way that it talks about, you know, it has this pattern. It has this pattern. And once he has this pattern, the mind goes down in activity because it has other things that it has to worry about. I want us to do our minds like that. I want us to have a pattern of listening to inspirational things. I want us to have a pattern of listening to motivational things. I want us to have a pattern, a pattern of uplifting yourself. And honestly, even if you got to record yourself so that that voice that you hear And it's your voice down in yourself. I want you to listen to the voice of yourself uplifting yourself. You are worthy. You are beautiful. You can't do this. You are possible. Because now when it becomes a habit and it's in your mind to be positive, when something happens, when you're in a time when you can't think, and because you can't think and you got to make a quick decision, and that quick decision is going to be determined by by your habits that you've been having, it's going to be a positive thought. It's going to be a motivational thought. It's going to be a positive move that you make because all this time you've been developing the habit to think positive, the habit to think optimistic. Does that make sense? So I just want to gear out that game as well. All right. So let's continue. Oh, I sound like somebody unmuted themselves. Somebody want to speak? Antonio?
6: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. peace and blessings, family. Peace. Um, I just wanted to I just wanted to quote the Honorable Minister Lois Farrakhan. He teaches us that the mind is a subtotal of knowledge that's gained through the totality of your life experience. Mm-hmm. So by us experiencing different things in life, by us uh, going through different situations, it's creating, uh, it's creating our mind. So the scriptures say, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's the experiences that we go through, the different experiences, the new experiences, the new work, the new, as, as Brother Ben and the uh, sister as well was talking about, and as well as the brother, the new suggestions that we are putting in our mind that is recreating the mind, the, the truth that we are feeding on that is recreating the mind, but not just the truth that we're feeding on. We have to have new experiences, so we have to act on the truth that we're feeding on to create this new mind.
0: Peace, Peace. Yes, sir. Thank you for that. And to add to that, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan also says, "He who gives you the diameter of your knowledge prescribes the circumference of your activity." <laughs> Man, I was deep there boy. He says, he who gives you the diameter of your knowledge prescribes the circumference of your activity. So when we examine the knowledge that we have been receiving. When we examine the thoughts that we've been thinking, if you look at your life, it is probably the sum total of our thoughts. It is indeed the sum total of our actions, but also the thoughts and feelings lead to our actions anyway. So as scripture says, be ye transformed by not the renewing of our money, not the renewing of our business, not the renewing of our Instagram likes, but by uh, the renewing of our mind. So let's get to it. Since Squire's first paper on Eugene's habits was published, the science of habit formation has exploded into a major field of study. Researchers at Duke, Harvard, UCLA, Yale, USC, Princeton, the University of Pennsylvania, and at schools in the United Kingdom, Germany and the Netherlands, as well as corporate scientists working for Procter & Gamble, Microsoft, Google, Google, And hundreds of other companies are focused on understanding the neurology and psychology of habits, their strengths and weaknesses and why uh, and why they emerge and how they can be changed. Researchers have learned that cues can be almost anything from a visual trigger, such as a candy bar or a television commercial to a certain place, a time of day, an emotion, a sequence of thoughts or the company of particular people. I'm going to say that one again, or the company of particular people. Routines can be incredibly complex or fantastically simple. Some habits, such as those related to emotions, are measured in milliseconds. Rewards can range from food or drugs that cause physical sensations to emotional payoffs, such as the feelings of pride that accompany praise or self-congratulations. And in almost every experiment, researchers have seen echoes of Squire's discoveries with Eugene. Habits are powerful, but delicate. They can emerge outside our consciousness or can be deliberately designed. They often occur without our permission, but can be reshaped by fiddling with their parts. They shape our lives far more than we realize. They are so strong, in fact, that they can cause our brains to cling to them at the exclusion of all else, including common sense. In one set of experiments, for example, researchers' affiliates with the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and uh, Alcoholism trained mice to uh, to press levers in response to certain cues until the behavior became a habit. The mice were always rewarded with food. Then the scientists poisoned the food so that it made the animals violently ill or electrified the floor so, they w- so that when the mice walked toward their reward, they received the shock. The mice knew the food and cage were dangerous when they were offered the poison pellets in a bowl or saw the electrified floor panels, they stayed away. When they saw their old cues, however, they unthinkingly pressed the lever and ate the food Or they walked across the floor even as they vomited or jumped from the electricity. The habit was so ingrained, the mice couldn't stop themselves. That's heavy right there. The habit was so ingrained, the mice couldn't stop themselves. It's so hard to find an analog in the human world. Consider uh, fast food, for instance. It makes sense when the kids are starving or you're driving home after a long day to stop just as once at McDonald's or Burger King. The meals are inexpensive. It tastes so good after all, one dose of processed meat, salty fries, and sugary soda possess a relatively small health risk, right? It's not like you do it all the time. But habits emerge without our permission. Studies indicate that families usually don't intend to eat fast food on a regular basis. What happens is that one That once a month pattern slowly becomes once a week and then twice a week as the cues and rewards create a habit until the kids are consuming an unhealthy amount of hamburgers and fries. When researchers at the University of North Texas and Yale tried to understand why families gradually increased their fast food consumption, they found a series of cues and rewards that most customers never knew were influencing their behaviors. They discovered the habit loop. Every McDonald's, for instance, looks the same. The company deliberately tries to standardize stores architecturally and what employees say to customers so that everything is constant, is a consistent cue to trigger eating routines. The foods at some chains are specifically engineered to deliver immediate rewards. The fries, for instance, are designed to begin disintegrating the moment they hit your tongue in order to deliver a hit of salt and grease as fast as possible causing your pleasure centers to lighten up and your brain to lock in the pattern. All the better for tightening the habit loop. However, even the habits are delicate. When a fast food restaurant closes down, the families that previously ate there will often start having dinner at home rather than seeing out. I'm sorry, rather than seek out an alternative location, even small shifts can end the pattern. But since we often don't recognize these habit loops as they grow, We are blind to our ability to control them by learning to observe the cues and rewards, though we can change the routines. By 2000, seven years after Eugene's illness, his life had achieved a kind of equilibrium. He went for a walk every morning. He ate what he wanted, sometimes five or six times a day. His wife knew that as long as the television was tuned in, Turned to uh, History Channel, Eugene would settle into his plush chair and watch it regardless of whether it was airing reruns or new programs. He couldn't tell the difference. As he got older, however, Eugene's habits started impacting his life in negative ways. He was sedentary, sedentary, sometimes watching television for hours at a time because he never grew bored with the shows. His physicians became worried about his heart. The doctors told Beverly to keep him on a strict diet of healthy foods. She tried, but it was difficult to influence how frequently he ate or what he consumed. He never recalled her ap- uh, admonishes. Even if the refrigerator was stocked with fruits and vegetables, Eugene would root around until he found the bacon and eggs. That was his routine. And as Eugene aged and his bones became more brittle, the doctor said he needed to be more careful walking around in his mind. However, Eugene was 20 years younger. He never remembered to sleep. I'm sorry, to step carefully. All my life, I was fascinated by memories, Squire told me. Then I met EP and saw how rich life can be, even if you can't remember it. The brain has this uh, amazing ability to find happiness, even when the memories of it are gone. It's hard to turn that off, though, which ultimately worked against him. Anybody want to start off at Beverly? I will. Go ahead.
7: Beverly tried to use her understanding of habits to help Eugene avoid problems as he as he aged. She discovered that she could sh- that she could short circuit some of his worst patterns by inserting the cues. If she didn't, didn't keep baking in the fridge, Eugene wouldn't eat multiple unhealthy breakfasts. When she put a salad next to his chair, he would sometimes pick at it. And as a small meal became a habit, he stopped searching the f- kitchen for treats. His diet gradually improved. Despite these efforts, however, Eugene's health still declined. One spring day, Eugene was watching television when he suddenly shouted, Beverly ran in and saw him clutching his chest. She called an ambulance. At the hospital, they diagnosed a minor heart attack. By then, the pain had passed, and the dream had, was fighting to get off his gurney. Excuse me. That night, he kept pulling off the monitors attached to his chest. So he would roll over and sleep. Alarms would blare, and nurses would rush in. They tried to get him to quit fiddling with the senses by ta- by taping the taping the leaves in place and telling him that he will use restraint if he continued fussing. Nothing worked. He forgot the threats as soon as they was issued. Then his daughter told a nurse to try comp- complimenting him on his willingness to sit still and to repeat the compliments over and over each time she saw him. We want we wanted. We wanted to, you know, get his pride involved. His daughter, Carol, Carol Ray told him. we said, oh dad, you're really doing something important for, for science by keeping these do, do, do in place. The nurses started to, to dote on him. He loved it. After a couple of days, he, he did whatever they asked. Eugene returned home a week later. Then in the fall of 2008, while walking through his living room, Eugene tripped on a ledge near the fireplace, fell and broke his hip. At the hospital, Squire and his team worried that he would have a panic attack because he wouldn't know where he was. So they left him notes by his. I don't have no more pages. It says some pages are omitted from this book preview. Okay, I'll take it from here.
0: All right. Uh so they left notes by his bedside explaining what happened and posted photos of his children on the walls his wife and kids came every day Eugene however never grew worried he never asked why he was in the hospital he seemed at peace with all the uncertainty by the by that point said squire it had been 15 years since he had lost his memory it was as if his as it was as if part of his brain knew there were some things he would never understand and that was and, and was okay with that. Beverly came to the hospital every day. I spent a long time talking to him, she said. I told him that I loved him and about our kids and what a good life we had. I pointed to the pictures and talked about how much he was adored. We were married for 57 years and 42 of those were a real normal marriage. Sometimes it was hard because I wanted my old husband back so much but at least I knew he was happy. A few weeks later, his daughter came to visit. What's the plan? Eugene asked when she arrived. She took him outside in a wheelchair outside the hospital's lawn. It's a beautiful day, Eugene said. Pretty nice weather, huh? She told him about her kids, and they played with the dog. She thought he might be able to come home soon. The sun was going down. She started to get ready to take him inside. Eugene looked at her. I'm lucky to have a daughter like you, he said. She was caught off guard. She couldn't remember the last time he had said something so sweet. I'm lucky that you're my dad. She told him, gosh, it's a beautiful day. He said, what do you think about the weather that night at one o'clock in the morning? Beverly's phone rang. The doctor said Eugene had suffered a massive heart attack and the staff had done everything possible, but hadn't been able to revive him. He was gone after his death. He would be celebrated by researchers in a map and images of his brain studied in hundreds of labs and medical schools. I know he would have been really proud to know how much he contributed to science. Beverly told me he told me once pretty soon after we got married that he wanted to do something important with his life. Something that mattered. And he did. He just never remembered any of it. All right. So that was part one. What did y'all get out of that last little part? Anybody got anything they want to share? Well, uh, I will go. Uh, One of the things that stood out to me was it says if she didn't keep baking in the fridge, Eugene wouldn't eat it multiple. Wouldn't eat multiple unhealthy break uh, breakfasts. When she put a salad next to his chair, he would sometimes pick at it. And as the meal became a habit, he stopped searching for the kitchen for treats. So that just reminded me that if there's anything negative around us that we are consuming to remove it. So many people ask me, Brother Ben asks, man, how do I know that you're going live? How do I know when you're producing a podcast? And I saw you also just made $130,000 in two days. Well, there's a way that you guys can get informed from us via text message. All you have to do is text 50K to 210 five zero four four zero nine four and we'll give you more information with free game and we'll let you guys know how we made hundred and thirty thousand dollars in two days text the word 50k to 210-504-4094 we'll give you updates notifications and let you guys know how we made 130,000 in two days peace to pluck it to save the whole body for those who believe in the scripture. Then it goes on to say. uh, Then his daughter told a nurse to try complimenting him on his willingness to sit still and to repeat the compliment over and over each time she saw him. And then we know that he got a little bit better um, after that. And that's what we call positive reinforcement. And so oftentimes we when we're trying to uh, to help our children do something better and continue to. Keep them doing something better. We have to give them positive reinforce enforcement like we give them negative reinforcement with the belt. And it also goes for ourselves, too, though. Some of us don't give our own selves positive reinforcement. We wait for somebody else to give us positive reinforcement. But what if it's not on them to give us positive reinforcement? You don't have to wait on your mother to give you positive reinforcement. You don't have to wait on your father or your uncle or anybody on Instagram to give you positive reinforcement. We have to look and find how to get that positive reinforcement from within. Because at that point, we are in control of our emotions. We are in control of how we feel and we are in control of our actions at that point. When we can give ourselves positive reinforcement, of course, if somebody else does That can drive it home But some of us have so many negative thoughts That we are in need of our own positive reinforcement I said one time It's hard for us to encourage somebody else And give somebody else a kind word If you get up in the morning And you never give yourself a kind word All the conversations with you and yourself is negative All the conversations with you and yourself is about doubt We have to change the conversations that we have with ourselves So that we can move differently So those two things at the end Stood out to me she removed the bacon Which was a cue Which caused him to go into that habit that he Had developed she put something new there And he developed a new habit So I don't know what that habit is for you And if anybody's willing to share I would love To hear it what is that thing For you when you see them is it when you go to Kroger And you see them snacks Is you just Do you just got to get them Skittles Do you just got to get that honey bun What is it for you and as we grow Through this you know, maybe some of y'all Can start to reveal that hey I learned how to change my habit. I learned what my cue was. I was conscious about my pattern without me noticing it. And I was able to locate it and then change it. So does anybody have anything else that they would like to share?
3: Yeah, I'll share. This is Kiara. Um, I had a surgery on my hip before my surgery. um, I was um, competing at an elite level in athletics. And uh, what happens, I allowed myself to stay in a, in a boxed in mindset with regard to my abilities. Like I, I got trapped in an identity as an athlete and it's been hard for me to come out of that mentality because I only saw myself from a place that's actually in the past. And so recently um, I've been taking some other athletic certs online and just figuring out a way to still um, give to myself and implement things that I can do on my level. Um, take radical acceptance. What I mean by that is understand that I'm still capable of doing so much in my life, but it might not be the avenue that I was taking initially. And what is helping me to do is to really start to, like you said a little bit ago, prune those things um, that aren't helping me to, one, get up every day and do those things I can do. And two, it's helping me to sift through the things that have been like weeds or cobwebs with regard to what I'm going to offer to um, the people that I want to extend my experience to.
0: Indeed. Thank you for sharing. Anybody else want to come on and share?
5: Uh, yeah. asalamu brother alaykum, brother. It's a, uh, this is brother Naeem. I would say mine is a little minute, but it's something that definitely helped me. I used to have a real issue with uh, snacking. You know what I'm saying? When I go into the store, I, I have a real bad sweet tooth. And so what I did to kind of change my habit is I would go into the store, you know, just to get gas. And, you know, I'd obviously start, you know, I'm standing in line, I'm looking around, I'm noticing something and I'll stare at the the product long enough until I convince myself, OK, I got to go get that. So now, you know, what I do when I when I go into the store, I just keep my head straight and I just focus on what I came into the store for, which is just to get gas and I, I head right back out. So that's just something that I, I had to work at with myself as far as, you know, battling and, and focusing on what I really was trying to achieve. It's just, that's what I did to help me kind of get out of that habit right there is, you know, I just, like, like I said before, I just stayed talking to myself, stayed in my head, knowing what I'm trying to do. And over a period of time, I no longer even crave the snacks anymore. It wasn't even something that was tempting me or something that I have to like worry about now. It's just a normalcy to me that the the products is there, but I'm not eager to go and, and taste that or, or get that fixed. You know, now I, I'm able to go in the store freely and, and do what I got to do and get out.
0: Hmm. Yes. You thought it was my new, that's powerful. It reminds me of, uh, there's an instant gratification, uh, experiment that they did with some children with marshmallows, I believe. And they had them in a the room and they told them don't eat it. But when they come back, they can eat it. And some of them ate it. Of course, their children But one of them who wasn't, who didn't fall for it, what they did was they just didn't look at it. They turned their back the whole time. So it wasn't on their mind. So being able to focus and understand what your focus is supposed to be on can very well help us with some of our bad habits. And I want to offer this fasting. The Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan said that fasting helps us build our will. So when you're, when you are, when your stomach is growling, you, we have the ability to tell our stomach, man, shut up. I'm, I'm, we're not eating right now. And the more you can fast from food and from drink, these are two things that are the necessity of life. We need these things. So when I can learn and build my will and desire to know there's food in the refrigerator, to know there's water and something to drink in the refrigerator, but I decide not to drink it. Oh, when somebody offers me alcohol, smoking or whatever the case may be, I'm strong enough to deny that because this, which is the necessity of life, I've built my will to do that. So fasting is another thing that we can do, helping us to build our will. And I'm not talking about, you know, you just ain't got nothing to eat and you say you've been fasting. I'm talking about, you know, because some of you are like, yeah, I've been fasting. I ain't All I do is eat. No, I'm talking about, you know, you got something in there. You know, you can go get it. But you told yourself, no, I'm not going to do it. If we can train ourselves to do that. We are building our will to be able to resist or resist things that are not good for us. Anybody else want to add on?
2: Greetings, everyone. I had this bad habit. Every time I woke up in the morning, I would go straight to my phone. And even at night before bed, I would grab my phone, check my messages on WhatsApp or go on Instagram to see what's going on. And I noticed that habit was it wasn't conducive to my spiritual or mental health. So I made it a new habit to set affirmations in the morning when I rise. And before bed, I would write down 10 things that I was grateful for, for that specific day. And eventually I got out of the habit of being on Instagram so much to the point where I even deleted the app of my phone. Wow. That's it.
0: Thank you for sharing. I'm pretty sure a lot of us got that habit right now. Boy, wake up, pick up that phone. So I thank you for sharing that one. Anybody else want to add?
8: I had a habit. Go ahead.
1: And I'm working on this deal, being more. Um, I was. I'm the type of person. I'm kind of sarcastic. Don't mean to be when I speak to people. So I'm learning how to change that habit and be more considerate of people's feelings. You know, when I speak with them, I don't try to do it. It just the way it come out. So I'm learning how to just shut up if I can't say anything night, you know. Mm -hmm.
0: That's good. Go ahead.
1: I'm practicing on, you know, trying to be less sarcastic when I speak to people.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. Anybody else want to chime in? Hello. How you doing?
8: Um, yes, I had a, I guess, a poor habit of eating until last August, I ended up having like some stomach problems. So I ended up going to the doctor and come to find out it was something to do with my intestines. So I had been had like poor eating habits all because I was fast food. Um, and I was kind of like the only child. So my mom pretty much she cooked like on Sundays and certain days. So I kind of got in the habit. And far as caffeine, like she would load the house up with caffeine. And um, like I said, last year I had problems. So I ended up going back and forth with the doctors and I was telling them like, this something's wrong. And they were saying this might've been a virus and different other things. But come to find out it was a mild gastration and it was something to do with my um, stomach lining. And I had been telling myself I was going to start eating right because I had been out of my own. I didn't really know how to cook. And I had kept making excuses excuses. So <clears throat> really, that forced me into changing because, like, even when I tried to, because I tried, like, once to drink, like, caffeine, and it missed my stomach up. It hurt, like, for a whole day. So I had to reinforce my thinking, like, okay, either you can try and go through the pain or either you can. Do what it takes to get better, like, um, to actually have a better lifestyle of eating. And since then, I haven't even drunk any caffeines. I've been on water. I don't even drink like fruit juices or anything. And uh, I just want to say, cause it really forced me into doing it in it. So I had to make a conscious decision on my own, say, okay, either you can constantly keep eating the food that's going to harm you or you can eat to live forever because I have a son also. And, um, I kind of incorporated really and truly like the things that I love to eat really are the things that's beneficial because my mom used to fuss like you, you eat like a little bird, but I like vegetables and stuff like this. So I say, um, really everything that I had, uh, I don't know how to put it, but the things that I enjoyed most about the foods were the things that were healthy, but my mom, like I said, she didn't cook a lot at home. So... I would have to should like fast food and buy things uh quick way. And those habits alone, like I said, eventually kind of messed me up like now. So I was like, OK, I have to eat better to so where I do make conscious decisions to eat better because I have been like on this vegan, uh not so much as vegan diet, but I drink smoothies and I'm eating a lot better. Like I changed like the whole lifestyle of pretty much since then.
0: Sounds good. I wanted to point out that even in your description, I don't even think you did it on purpose. You spoke about the you spoke about the pattern. Um, you spoke about the pattern and you spoke about the reward. You mentioned your son. Um and for a lot of people, I think just finding and switching the reward can help a lot of people as well. So if you're doing something if you can change the little pleasure that you may receive, If you if you can change the little feeling that you may receive to something more significant, like I have to live for my son or shoot, I just have to live for myself or I have to do something else that may help you change the bad habits that you have by consciously picking a different reward or a better reward for you doing the right thing. You know, there's a lot of people who say, "Man, after I had my son, after I had my daughter, it changed my life. After you know, after my homie got shot or whatever, it changed my life." So sometimes out for, uh, outside motivation um, can help us as well if we can change what that reward is. Hey, brother Ben. Yes, sir.
6: Peace. Um, I got a question. Do what?
5: based on what you've read so far? Do you see any habits that? attributed to your success from transitioning from basketball to uh more so the, the social
0: media space, man, that's a wonderful question. Um, I actually think everything that I did uh, to train and create those habits in basketball uh, transferred over to business um, because in, in basketball, I was the type of player that went to the gym and I didn't care who was in the gym. I was going to go to the gym no matter what. Uh, and I always practice on my craft. Uh, I was top, point, you know, point guard in the nation, you know, for a scoring and assist. So in business, I know how to make money. And I am literally helping thousands of people learn how to make money as well, meaning that I'm assisting them. And so as a point guard, when you're coming down in transition, sometimes the defense is going to get in two, three. They may go one through one. They go boxing one. So I have to always be quick on my feet and making decisions. And also uh, playing as a team, I had to know how to play as a team. Yes, I was good. Yes, I was an All-American, but I knew in order for us to win the game, I couldn't do it all by myself. So uh, there was one time when I did try to dunk on Marcus Smart in the game. It looked crazy and I got taken out the game. But when I just threw it to my big man who could dunk, when I threw it to my big man that was six, seven, it was easy for him to dunk it. Versus me, if I if my shot is off, it's easy for me to penetrate and then kick it to the corner to my man's who's hot. So it keeps me in a position of going hard. Like a lot of people have actually reached out to me, which is why your question is so good. And said the same uh, intensity and mindset that I saw you grow up with with basketball. You now have that with your people and in business. And it's because of those habits that I have of just going hard. Uh, being optimistic and practicing on my craft uh, over and over again until it becomes second nature. So everything that I'm doing with like content, some people say, bro, do you have video scheduled? I said, no, I literally post all those videos. You see, sometimes I post 12, 15 times a day, but it's because now I've done it so much. It literally has became a habit to where I can knock out videos almost in my sleep. It doesn't take me all that uh, time. So I would say definitely, yes, uh, that basketball man in sports period converted over to what I'm doing today
5: one more thing would you, would you say that your your coach in in basketball would would kind of sort of be like one of your first mentors would that be like a mentor to kind of help you develop those um th- that work ethic
0: honestly um mm-hmm. i would say no i would I, i've been dedicated uh since since a young age before I played organized basketball I was just that child man that was always outside I'm talking about 100 degree weather I'm out there shooting basketball playing myself in one on one literally I'm talking about throwing the ball up acting like somebody jumping and then doing like this and literally blocking my own shot so I was that guy because uh I grew up as the only child so that's just what I did man I, I've always been motivated anything that I put my mind to I did, I've done, I mean, I, I know how to do magic. I played basketball, football. Anything that I really put my mind to because of my mindset and the habits that I've developed, I feel like I can be great at it. Uh, I, I, I can't say that, that the, the coach is what gave me that. Um, yeah, because I was, man, I, I, I've i been kind of motivated, self-motivated um, for a long time. I just think me wanting to be successful has been the motivator for me. Of course, coaches kind of helped me. Uh, uh, mold maybe my mindset or something, or how to think. I had a I had a, a coach or a trainer, Brother Akbar, who when I got to by high school, he started to teach me about the science and 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 improving my IQ. As far as hey man, you can't just keep shooting threes all your life because you got to learn how to penetrate and do pull up uh, jumpers, mid range. I didn't know how to shoot mid range in high school. I was always a guy who can shoot threes good and all that type of stuff, layup and all that but I didn't have that inside game. So he was able to coach me on taking them hard dribbles, pulling up how to actually shoot it. So when I got to high school, yes, but as far as that, that drive and that hustle, I think I developed that habit by just being a child who was always trying to improve himself. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Anybody else?
5: I think it's great what you were speaking on as far as uh explaining how you just always had that drive uh your whole life, brother. Me myself, with the success that I have, I have a lot of my peers and a lot of uh people that follow me on Instagram, you know, reach out to me, you know, give me all this praise and so much confidence and so much beautiful words, or they're amazed by the things that I have achieved and I just let them know that it's it's not that I have like some type of amazing ability or anything like that. I just never gave up on myself. No matter what stood in my way, no matter what tried to stop me, I continue to try to achieve my goals. And I'm still doing that to this day. And that's all that it is. You know, a lot of people, like I said, just look at it like it's just a really big deal. But all it is, is just perseverance, 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 no matter what age you're at, no matter where your mind state is at. No matter when the creator decides to wake you up and show you your journey, you just got to keep going after it. You got to have that hunger inside of you. Like you said, you hunger for success. So you obtain success. It's just like with my workouts that I show folks, you got to build up that level to where you got that hunger inside of you that you want to achieve that body that you want to achieve that level of health. And it it goes the same with success. If you hunger for it and you push for it, really nothing is going to stand in your way and nothing is going to stop you as long as you continue to never let that die inside of you. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yes, sir. That's good. Anybody else?
5: I got my mother here, brother. She wanted to speak real quick.
0: Okay, go ahead.
9: Salam alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. I would like to say um, there was a sister that was on before, and she was speaking about changing for the benefit of her son. Um, I've been living a, a natural, healthy, alkaline diet for seven years straight. I have been living a vegetarian diet for 17 years. It was because of our children that I made these changes. I was always into fitness and working out and trying to not get fat. That was my big issue was I don't want to be fat. I don't want to get fat. I don't want to get fat. But when we started listening to Dr. Sevi, Layla Africa, Queen Fua, their focus was more on the brain. And that became something that was like a goal for me is to obtain optimum thinking levels by eating certain foods and making decisions. The lifestyle became so part of our religion almost because we would make salat, go work out, make salat, go work out. It, It became part of our lifestyle and then it bled over into the business. Our business is now natural. We now service people and offer natural products. But my children were sick. My boys had asthma, allergies, they couldn't breathe. They had a machine. My son was taking steroids and the doctor was just giving us medications. We went in one day and there was an Indian nurse who was filling in for our doctor and I tested irregular on a pap smear. She she told me immediately, change your diet today. If you want these cysts to go away without surgery, start eating different. And we started implementing the changes. We, we couldn't afford to do it for one person. So we did the whole household, but the change was dramatic within a week. My boys were more alert. They were more attentive. They could remember things, little simple things that kids get in trouble for. A, a lot of that is the diet that they can't remember because of all the starts you've given them and all the sugar, all that was attributing my parenting. So all that changed. And like I said, we we always let people know that we are Muslim. That is part of our tool, that that isn't something that we can bypass and say that we didn't need that. That was part of it. It all became a part of this formula. Um, My message to people is to develop a formula for your household. If you are the scientist, you're the chemist, you go into your kitchen and you create a formula that is sustainable for your family. It's based on how your family eats, what they like to eat, what their taste and the variety is. There is a plethora of food that most people haven't even explored yet, but all of them um, give you optimum health. The exercise is also a part of the formula. But it bonded us. We are a family who works out and stays healthy and eats alkaline. We are a unit. We move as a unit. When one person finds information that um, will benefit us, we implement it into the program and it becomes part of our lifestyle. So to the mothers out there, my children are grown. All of them are healthy. And we have a granddaughter who's 12. We took her off formula at six months. My, my daughter didn't want to breastfeed. Dr. Sebi told, told us to give her what we were eating. So we put it all in a blender and we gave her smoothies. And, and people around are bear witness to the fact that this baby didn't have no bottles. She's 12. She hasn't had no shots. She hasn't been to a dentist. She doesn't have cavities. She doesn't get none of that. Even when she started her menses, her period lasts three days. What 12-year-old got a three-day cycle? Ours do because she's alkaline and, and her body, her, her lifestyle, it's, it's in her. We started this and it carried over into the second generation. So we are living proof that making the changes doesn't just benefit the way your body looks. It will benefit your brain, which will allow you the ability to be more successful, more attentive, more alert, not procrastinate. All of those things are necessary tools. I, I encourage everybody that is listening right now to just remember what time we're in. And you literally have five minutes to get up, make the decision, and get on it. May Allah protect us all. Asalaamu Alaikum.
0: Wa uh, Alaikum. Thank you for sharing. Somebody said, How do they get in contact with Naeem's mind? You know, you can't drop no information like that and nobody try to contact you.
9: We are building our website. This week, actually. Okay. Better information, and um, we, Allah just put it on us during Ramadan that we need to present ourselves as a family instead of trying to have individual Instagrams and social media bases. We are going to introduce ourselves as a family. E fam is energy from Allah moving, and that's what we are. So that's is. Thank you for asking that because we are working on that.
0: Okay, sounds good. Well, we're going to uh, do these. We're going to be on part two next week. Uh, again, the recording will be inside of our ABS tribe. The ABS tribe is, you know, the link is in our, uh, my bio on Instagram. That's where you can find it to be a part of the uh, the ABS tribe. And, uh, man, I'm grateful for all of 60-plus of you being a part of this and, and sharing your time. And I thank those of you all who helped me read and everybody who unmuted yourself and shared something. Uh, Again as we uh, do this we're going to be going through more books more chapters please always remember to focus on self-improvement which is the basis for community development whenever we're reading yes we're reading this but I want us all to be taking principles out and thinking about ourselves so that after this is over with we didn't just read a book y'all know what I say. It's not about how many books we've read. It's about how many pages we've applied. So what out of this today can you start to apply tomorrow? What principles, what knowledge did somebody share that you can take out of today that you can start to implement and start thinking better tomorrow? That's what I want us all to be focused on. And with that being said, I will keep you guys updated on when the next reading is going to be. If you have not already subscribed to the text list, please text PEACE. To 214-833-7781 Text PEACE P-E-A-C-E P-E-A-C-E To 214-833-7781 And that's where I will send you all the text messages um, With the book links as I did today uh, If the book ever changes And with the time and date So I thank everyone for coming on and sharing Yeah, have a blacktastic day assalamu Alaikum. All right. So I didn't know we would sign into that one. So, man, that is uh, the power of habit. And we just went live with the group, the ABS Tribe group. They're not all on the ABS Tribe. That was kind of everybody. But it's going to be uploaded and recorded for those who are inside of the ABS Tribe. So if you are interested in being a part of the ABS Tribe, We will have exclusive book readings for the ABS tribe. Um, Sign up. Go to my Instagram link in my bio. Hit that top link and sign up for the ABS tribe. Along with this, you're going to get two weekly business coaching as well. So uh, we're just trying to build, man, and help everybody develop mentally, spiritually, and economically. With that being said, thank you all for listening to this podcast. Peace. Look for the lesson. That's where we'll find the blessing. Look for the lesson, and that's where you'll find the blessing. See, some of y'all done went through something in your past, and you call it an L. Man, I done took an L. Yeah, you took an L. But do you, are, are you interpreting that L as a loss, or are you interpreting that L as a lesson? Your attitude determines your altitude. What attitude do I have? Am I looking at this from God's eyes, or am I looking from it from my little selfish, little, little small eyes? When something is going on in the world, how do I look at it? Do I look at it as, oh, the world is over with? Or do I look at it and say, what is, what's going on here? What is the purpose of this? Why was this permitted? Because see, the honorable minister Louis Khan talked about with the will of God, when he will, when he wants to will a thing into existence, he considers the thoughts and plans of the enemy and uses their plan and uses their will to bring his will more into fruition. So he even considers their thoughts, he considers what they're going to do. So it may appear that they had, it appeared they won here or they did something here, but that was all a part of the plan the whole time to bring about a greater good. So if we can expand our mindset and see the good out of things, the law of polarity, if we can look and see the good out of what's going on, now we can look at ourselves and say, oh, if we just do this right here, we can use this as our advantage. Look for the lesson, that's where we'll find the blessing.